0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And today I'm back in my uh, broadcasting closet as part of the pandemic, and I'm thrilled to welcome Gabi F- Gabrielle Finder to the show. Gabi is professor in the Department of Germanic Language and Literature at uh, the University of Virginia. And he is the former Ida and Nathan Kolodiz, director of Jewish studies at the university. And recently he became the associate editor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Today, uh, we're going to talk about the book, uh, Justice Behind the Iron Curtain, Nazis on Trial in Communist Poland, which Gabi wrote with his co-author, Alexander Prusin. Uh, The book is a a comprehensive account of the trials of Nazi perpetrators conducted and liberated in post-war Poland. But it's more than that. It's, it's a reflection on how politics impact justice and, and a think piece about how tri- what, what trials can teach us about uh, perpetrators and, and about the societies in which they're tried and, and about the way in which ordinary Poles responded to the Holocaust. Uh, and, and it's a wonderful book. And, and I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk with Gabi about it. So with that, Gabi, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And so I always ask people, Gabi, um, to start the interview, just to say a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to the listener. How did did you become an academic? How did you become interested in this topic?
1: Well, I have, um, my story might be parallel to that of some of my colleagues. I'm um, the first person in my family born in the United States, um, my I come from a family of Holocaust survivors and victims. Uh, my parents were born in Vienna and Stuttgart, Germany. My mother came here with her family in 1940 to the United States. My father and grandfather survived many camps. I came to the United States in 1946. And so the Holocaust has always been the background to my life. Um, I decided... Uh, To go to law school after college at Brandeis University. I studied Near Eastern and Judaic Studies and I've always been interested in uh, Jewish history and culture. And I studied law. And after law school, I went to law school at the University of Pennsylvania. And after law school, I decided to try to live in Israel. And uh, my first job in Israel was at the office, the district attorney's office in Jerusalem. And I was there for a year. I was a young attorney. And uh, during the end of my first year there, there was movement afoot in that office to organize for the forthcoming extradition of John Demianyuk from the United States uh, to face trial in Israel for being uh, a member of the staff at uh, Treblinka. And since I was a young attorney and I knew several languages from home, had studied the Holocaust, had studied law in the United States, I was tapped uh, to be a member of the prosecution team in Israel on the demianuk trial, which you know, the Demyanyuk trial itself has a checkered history, but for me, it was very exciting uh, to be part of the staff. I was a small fry attorney, I had just uh, barely out of law school. And I worked behind the scenes on that trial for three years from the moment of his extradition until the end of the trial in uh, the late spring of 1988. And my responsibilities behind the scenes in the office, or one of my responsibilities, was to gather historical evidence for the trial. And uh, into the trial, I decided to switch uh, gears or directions And I said to myself, when the trial is over, I want to return to school and study European history and the Holocaust. And after the trial, I returned to the U.S., went to the University of Chicago, and uh, received my degree in European history at the University of Chicago, my Ph.D. I found a position at the University of Virginia. And that's, I've always been interested, therefore, in the Holocaust, uh, Jewish history I went to law school and I in my scholarship I always try to find ways to integrate my interest in Jewish history, uh law and the Holocaust.
0: So that's an amazing story. Um and 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 I'll come back in a little bit to talk about what kind of insights your history as a lawyer gives you as as you study this field, but but maybe now I maybe why this book? Your, your your scholarship is somewhat varied. Why write about justice in Poland? Well, you know, I
1: uh, was raised in a family that uh, my I had I was an unusual um, offspring of survivors. I also had grandparents who survived, and I remember growing up. I grew up with several languages, um, also with a little Polish, more Russian than Polish. I grew up with German and Yiddish, um, Russian a smattering of Polish. And my grandparents always talked badly, of course, about Germans, but they also talked badly about Poles. And I grew up with a stereotype that all Poles were uh, terrible and that uh, the Holocaust uh, was minimized uh, in uh, Polish uh, political life and cultural life. And, um, you know, I read a lot and I became interested. And in, uh, in one of my fields is uh, Central European Jewish history, especially. I've In my own academic life, I think this is partly for emotional reasons, I've concentrated mostly on the post-war period, not the Holocaust per se. Though I teach the Holocaust at the University of Virginia, but it's easier for me emotionally to deal with the post-war period. And uh, so I've always been interested in Poland and Poles' interaction with Jews during the Holocaust. And because of my interest in post-war trials, it seemed like a natural thing for me to begin to... Investigate, and then I have to say something about my co-author. This is probably a good time for me to say that Uh, Alexander Prusin, my friend Alex, Alex, and um, Alex, as you know, Kelly. um, Many of the listeners won't know this, but Alex passed away uh, just before the publication of our book in 2018. Our book was published in October. Alex and I had met in graduate school when I was at the University of Chicago. He did his master's degree at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where I was a an adjunct teaching the Holocaust. We met there. We became great friends. He had just recently arrived in the United States from uh, the Soviet Union. And when I was in the 1980s, uh, after college and during law school, uh, I had been very active uh, in the uh, Soviet Jewish emigration movement, had been to the Soviet Union. Uh, four times in the 1980s to work with the Jews who wanted to leave the Soviet Union but weren't allowed to. And so Alex and I had that in common. We became close friends. I was his first best friend in the United States. And we became very close and we had many interests in common. His father had fought in World War II uh, for the Soviet Union. He had lost, uh, his father had lost family members in the Holocaust. And the two of us, um, Joint forces, and we um, we wrote two articles together uh, at the beginning of our careers in 2004 and 2008, I believe. Uh, one was on Ukrainian collaboration during the Holocaust in 2004, and that went very well. And then we tried another one on, in 2008, and this was a topic which interested both of us, which I'm still working on, and that is... Um, uh, the trials uh of the jews who were accused of collaboration during the holocaust primarily in poland that's what i work on and a few later if you're interested i can talk about my research in that area um and alex and i published an art. i edited uh, co-edited a um a, a yearbook uh, a um volume of the journal Pauline, which is a yearbook uh, dealing with uh, Polish Jewish history and culture, and that year, that the 2008 issue that was volume 20 dealt with the uh, memory of uh, the Holocaust in Poland, and we wrote an article on uh, the way in which uh, Jews who were accused of collaboration were uh, treated. Uh, In both uh, Polish state courts and in Jewish communal courts or honor courts. And that went very well. And so after those two experiences, we were very close friends. We looked at each other and said, you know what? We have an interest. We're both interested in Poland. We're both interested in the post-war period. I'm a trained lawyer. He was very well versed in the law. So why don't we try to write a book on this topic? Because no one else had written a book about this topic before. And it, uh, the topic, I think, is interesting. I mean, it's interesting, I think, for many reasons. But one interesting reason is that it defies conventional wisdom before we decided to write the book we we looked into the topic to see whether or not it would be interesting we investigated the topic and our conclusion was that uh it was you know it would not have been an interesting book i think if it had um conformed to stereotypes that uh polls had basically suppressed uh memory of the holocaust uh in uh, post-war trials of Nazis. But we found that it was much more complicated than that. Uh, it also would not have been very interesting if the trials of Nazis had been Stalinist-like show trials. And we found that that wasn't true, too. So we looked at each other and said, we have an interesting topic here. Uh, we work well together. It's not always easy uh, to work with other scholars in writing. I like writing with other scholars. I like collaborative projects. But, you know, scholarship is often an isolated topic. Um, uh, venture. Uh, so Alex and I worked well together. We were both interested in the topic. Uh, we both have our backgrounds, um, you know, in the Holocaust, our parents, grandparents. Um, I'm, we're both interested in law. I was a trained lawyer. Um, we're both interested in Eastern Europe. And so that's why it made sense for us to do this.
0: Well, let me first say, uh, uh um, I guess the stereotypical, but still well meant. sorry for your loss. Um, and and, oh, and, and not we just your loss, but friends. the community's yeah. loss, yes. Yeah. Um yes, I know true. I've worked with co-authors uh and know how close you get to them uh and and that's hard. And so um but, and you
1: know, Kelly, if you don't mind, if uh, Kelly, if you don't no, mind, please. I'd like to dedicate our interview uh to mm-hmm. my good friend Alex Proust because I have to say that uh, our book was a joint vent- adventure and venture from beginning to end. And uh, I was deeply um, affected uh, by his death just a few weeks prior to publication. And, you know, we did everything together. We were almost like brothers. And uh, therefore, we were like brothers, really. And therefore, I'd like to dedicate this interview uh, to my dear friend, Alexander Kursen.
0: Well, the work that uh, I know it is small com- uh, consolation, but the work that the two of you did was really great. And I'm, it is oh, that's uh, kind of you. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. It is uh, one of the virtues of doing this as a profession that the, the wisdom and the insight that we gain lives on beyond us. And it's small compensation, but it's perhaps some. Um, in the introduction to the book, you, you, you talk about a little bit about what exactly the subject is you're investigating, and you talk about the problems associated with the term war crimes. So, so maybe to start with, you can say a little bit about terminology and what um, what the subject of the book is.
1: Yeah, well, I should say in uh, in the introduction. Um We decide uh, to, we make a point of uh, telling the reader that we want to use the term war crimes as uh, little as possible, because it's a flawed uh, term. Um, War crimes, when I think of war crimes, I think of crimes that are committed in the course of war for a military purpose. And the crimes for which Nazis were put on trial had no military. The crimes that we're talking about were really uh, went well beyond a military purpose. So, what the Nazis had in mind was um, uh, crimes, uh, well, they committed crimes on an unprecedented scale. And the aim, or the aims of those crimes, was not just or even to win war, but to, to dehumanize and um, persecute, oppress, and um, Commit genocide against the civilian populations, so the word or the term phrase war crimes trials seems like uh, seemed like a flawed, uh, inappropriate term to us. So therefore, we you know because it's shorthand and we use it occasionally in the book, but uh, we decided uh, that we were going to uh, make a concession, even though the phrase war crimes. Or war crimes trials would have been easier to use. We use these circumlocutions like trials of Nazis in Poland, uh, and uh, trials for Nazi acts and things like, or acts by Nazis, things like that. So it's a little bit cumbersome, but I think it's more accurate than the use of the term war crimes trial. And so the kinds of trials that uh, Alex and I uh, investigate in the book were trials committed by? I should say, and this is very important, and I'll make, I want to make this point um, at the very beginning. Our book, the scope of our book, and the topic of our book is uh, trials in communist Poland, from um, or even I'd say before uh, communism became consolidated in Poland, but from ninth from the fall of 1944, when the Soviets started liberating Eastern Poland through. 1959, which was, in our view, the last important uh, trial of a Nazi in Poland. So, But we limit the scope of our book uh, to trials of German and Austrian Nazis. This is not a book about uh, trials of uh, so-called or genuine collaborators in Poland. And a a very important um, point in our book is that we know that uh, justice was often uh, manipulated, uh, distorted in communist Poland. Uh, Trials of real collaborators and imaginary collaborators in communist Poland were, to a large extent, show trials. Kangaroo courts uh, did not uh, conform to our standards of the rule of law. That is an important topic. The trials of collaborators are an important topic, but they are not the topic of our book. Our book, which itself runs over 300 pages, is a book about the trials of German and Austrian Nazis in Poland. And therefore, one of our arguments is that you have to look at the trials of collaborators, or you have to make a distinct draw a distinction between the trials of collaborators, both real and imaginary, distinguish those trials from the trials in communist Poland of German and Austrian Nazis, to a large extent, the trials of real and imaginary collaborators—that is, people who were opponents or of the um, and communist regime—those were to a large extent show trials, and they're interesting to examine. But our tra- the trials of German and Austrian Nazis, we contend uh, in the book, were f- to a large extent uh, similar to uh, proceedings against Nazi. Um defendants that were held in Western European countries. So that's and therefore you have to examine them th- through that lens, not as show trials, but as trials that's more or less conform to rule of law standards. So that's very important. Um that's one important um, um we make two I would say our book is really um uh, permeated by two interweaving arguments or interwoven arguments that 's one the reason now some people say might ask why uh were uh, the trials of um German and Austrian Nazis why did they more or less uh look similar to proceedings against uh Nazi defendants in Western European countries? And uh, whereas the trials of uh, collaborators, both real and imaginary, when I say collaborators, I mean collaborators with the Nazi regime who then tried in communist Poland. Why were they uh, show trials? And the reason is, Alex and I argued uh, that the communist regime was much more interested. That is the uh, the incipient. Uh communist regime in the immediate post-war years. And you know, we deal with the years basically f- the end of 44 through 1959, 1960. The communist regime was much more interested in the trial, uh, trials of collaborators because it uh wanted the regime wanted to eliminate uh potential and real political opponents of the regime. So there were real collaborators in Poland, but it also the regime tarred many people who were not Nazi collaborators. As collaborators, because it solved the regime saw them as real or potential enemies of the regime and wanted to eliminate them. That's why there were show trials. But in the case of trials of German and Austrian Nazis, communist officials basically weren't that much weren't that interested in those trials. So they uh, their approach was more or less a, a hands off approach, and they let uh, legal professionals who had been trained uh, before World War Two in the interwar period. That is. Um, Jurists, um, uh, judges, lawyers who've been trained in the, what I would call the rule of law tradition in interwar Poland, they let them uh, conduct the trials uh, according to the way in which they had been trained. And the communist authorities basically kept their hands off those trials. And also, there was also an advantage to the uh, trials um, of uh, the communist authorities allowing those trials to proceed in that way. And that is that the trials, um, Uh, gave the communist regime a bit of domestic and foreign legitimacy. Because a lot of foreign visitors, like Telford Taylor, who was um, the assistant to uh, Justice Jackson at the Nuremberg trial, and then who was responsible, who was in charge of the subsequent Nuremberg trials, he attended a couple of the trials in Poland. So he uh, observed the trials. So there was a certain, by um, conducting Trials that more or less conformed to Western standards gave the regime some foreign legitimacy. And then an interesting point that Alex and I make in the book is that, of course, communists, non-communists, anti-communists, they had so many differences between them. And these differences often erupted into violence. But if there's one factor that unified all all, uh, positions in the Polish political spectrum, it was their... Hatred of the German occupation, uh, their hatred of Nazis. So the trials of uh, German and Austrian Nazis also played something like an integrative function in uh, post-war Poland and communist Poland, because it drew it was one issue on which both communists, non-communists, anti-communists could agree that Nazis, German and Austrian Nazis, ought to be tried in Polish courts. So that's one basic argument. That's one argument in our book. And then the other, should I continue? um, Please go right ahead. (laughs) Thank you. The other argument is uh, the argument related to the Holocaust. And uh, we argue in the book that, and I think this is what makes our book uh, interesting and distinctive. Uh, We argue in the book that Polish trials of German and Austrian Nazis addressed what we now call the holocaust of course the term holocaust was term was coined in uh the early 1960s uh, the genocide of uh, the jews the persecution and genocide of jews or in polish it was called Zog- zagwada żydów the destruction of the jews
0: polish trials
1: of german and austrian nazis addressed the holocaust in what we describe as more or less an open and even-handed manner. And it was the one public institution in post-war Poland that uh, dealt with the Holocaust in this rather even-handed way. Because already, and we find that's very interesting, because when you think of, uh, I've written a lot of, about memory in Poland, and when one thinks of uh, you know um, collective memory in Poland and the way in which Poles remember the remember the Holocaust, at least before, during the communist period, the Holocaust was generally the fate of Jews, the suffering of Jews, and this was true in other Eastern European countries, also true in Western European countries to a great extent. The the fate, suffering, tragedy of Jews was also was usually universalized. That is, the fate of Jews was uh, shoehorned, I would say, into a uh, narrative uh, adapted in each country to its distinctive form or permutation of collective national identity. That is, the the fate of Jews was part of the overall tragedy of the citizens of that country or nation. Uh, and this was certainly true in uh, post-war Poland. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, as an, I mean, when I think about this issue, I think about uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, mm-hmm. and uh, the famous. Um, maybe you've been. To, I don't know if you've been to Warsaw, but many of the listeners have. probably have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and they've seen uh, the famous um, Warsaw Ghetto uh, Uprising monument. Mm-hmm. The monument to Jews in the Warsaw Warsaw Uprising, the uprising that the Jews mounted against the Nazi regime in uh, April and May 1943, and that was crushed uh, by the Nazi regime, that was, I mean, by the uh, SS, uh, by troops uh, that were um, headed by. Uh, General Jürgen Stroop, who was one of the people who was then tried in Poland in 1951, and figures uh, largely uh, his trial figures largely in our book. So in 1948, uh, the monument, which is an impressive monument, was uh, unveiled. A monument, uh, an amazing sculpture. statue that was created by Nathan Rapoport, a uh, Jewish sculptor. And uh, there was an unveiling and uh, at the 1948 unveiling on the um, uh, anniversary of the uh, beginning of the uprising on April 19th, 1943, uh, the Jewish dignitaries and uh, state dignitaries, Poles, Jews came together and it was largely an event to commemorate uh, the Jewish uprising against the Nazis, but within one year, the Jewish aspect of the not, of the uprising was more or less hijacked by the communist regime, and uh, from that point on, from 1949, basically through the end of the communist period, though things started to change uh, in the 1980s, but that's beyond the scope of our discussion because our book really deals with Charles uh, up to about 1960. But the um, the It was the uprising was uh, the Warsaw Kera uprising was a Jewish uprising, but um, more and more so um, the communist contribution and the contribution of Poles to the uprising was emphasized at the commemoration every year uh, to the uprising that was held at the monument. So it was the Jewish uh, aspect of uh, the uprising was more or less hijacked, and it was made into a Polish national and communist uh, effort to oust Um, uh, the Nazis from, uh, to resist the Nazis during the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto. So that was the general trend in collective memory in Poland and many other places to uh, minimize uh, the distinctiveness of the uh, Jewish dimension of uh, the Holocaust and to universalize the Jewish faith and make it part of the larger national fate but that did not happen during the trials that's what i find that's why alex and i found the trial so interesting it was the one institutional space in which the tragedy of the jews the suffering of jews also heroism of jews i have to say was given a distinctive uh, place of honor in the courtroom that is not to say that uh, every trial of every nazi there were about um Uh, 5,500 German and Austrian Nazis were uh, tried and convicted between 1944 and 1959 in Poland. Not every trial dealt dealt with uh, what we now call the Holocaust, but many of the trials did. And uh, it's so fascinating to see that the the prosecution, this is the Polish prosecutors, they worked for the state, they worked for the state, judges in their judgments, They gave a place of, um, they afforded a distinctive place uh, to the Holocaust, to the genocide of the Jews, uh, both in their proceedings and in the judgment. And Alex and I make the argument uh, throughout the book, in various chapters, we read this argument throughout the book, but uh, we also make it, I think we make it quite um, expressly, both in introduction and in the epilogue, that the law. Uh, these proceedings against the uh, German-Austrian and Nazis was the one institutional space in which the Holocaust was um, aired in an even-handed manner in a public setting.
0: So let's tease some of those themes apart a little bit, and let's start. Um, you talked about trials starting before the war was even done. So, so how early did the polls and which polls start thinking about questions of justice and trials?
1: So that's a, thank you. That's a very interesting uh, question, Kelly. So as I said earlier, the one uh, the trials played an integrative um, role in uh, Polish politics. That is, both even though the communists and the non-communists or anti-communists were at loggerheads in both camps vied for supremacy in post-war Poland. Of course, the communists eventually prevailed. Um, already from uh, the uh, Nazi occupation of Poland into the nineteen, the first part of the 1940s, before the end of World War II, um, both camps, both the uh, Polish uh, government in exile, the non- or anti-communists uh, in London, and then uh, communists who were stationed in Moscow, both of them, um, uh, propagated policies, advanced policies, to try uh, German and Austrian Nazis after the war. And uh, so the uh, government, the Polish government in exile, was very active in efforts to persuade the Americans and the British um, to investigate uh, crimes of... Uh, uh, let's call them for the sake of shorthand, war crimes trials committed by um, Germans and Austrians in Poland, uh, and uh, for uh, for their part, uh, the communists in Moscow also began to make plans um, to try uh, German and Austrian Nazis uh, in Poland. Uh, so uh, one interesting um, af- aspect of uh, the case uh, of um, The pre war period, sorry, not the pre war, but the uh, period before the war ended in 1945 is that you have the Polish delegation in London working closely with uh, the Americans and the British to try to persuade them uh, to uh, formulate a policy together with Moscow uh, after the war to put uh, German and Austrian uh, Nazis on trial. And you have the same impulse uh, coming from Moscow among the Polish communists. So uh, all of us know the history. Uh, The history is that um, uh, the Soviet Union uh, began to liberate Eastern Poland already by the late summer of 1944. Uh, The Soviets installed a uh, uh, pro-Soviet Polish provisional uh, regime, in Poland, already in the eastern parts of Poland. And uh, already uh, before the end of the war, um, Polish communists uh, began to uh, issue uh, decrees, uh, which they, uh, in their own minds, had the force of law uh, to try uh, Nazis um, in Poland. And uh, the most important decree is called the August Decree, passed on August 31st, 1944, um, in Polish, it's called Szabniewka, um which is uh, the decree of August. And uh, according to that uh, decree passed, uh, issued by Polish communists, um, uh, uh, individuals uh, who assisted the, the German authorities in Poland could be put on trial in Poland um, for um, Nazi crimes. And uh, already by the uh, late fall of uh, 1944, uh, Nazis were being put on, German and Austrian Nazis were being put on trial uh, in the the eastern part of Poland that was controlled by uh, Polish communists uh, being under the protection of uh, the Soviet uh, regime. And so, for instance, um, the most important trial uh, in late uh, 1944 was the trial of uh, several uh, def- um, personnel from the Majdanek uh, concentration camp um, outside Lublin. And in uh, November 1944, there was already a trial of uh, half a dozen or so of uh, SS officers, both uh, commissioned, non-commissioned, and also a couple of kapos who were eventually found guilty of. Um, uh, um, crimes against both uh, Jews and Poles at Majdanek. So already in the fall of 1944, Polish communists um, were um, conducting trials of Nazis. Uh, for their part, um, the uh, Poles um, in the West, uh, in London, uh, were working together with the Allies to begin to create um, the term, set the stage for what became known as the Nuremberg Trial and uh, helped, uh, um, as i say, create the framework of the scaffolding uh, for the Nuremberg trial. By the time the trial was held uh, 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 at the end of the war, uh, Polish communists were in control in Poland. But what's very interesting is that um, uh, Polish, uh, a Polish delegation already, uh, at the the beginning of the Nuremberg trial, Uh, the Nuremberg trial lasted from uh, the fall of 1945 to the fall of 1946. And of course, the Nuremberg trial was um, um, developed by and conducted by the big four, the United States, uh, the UK, the Soviet Union and France. Uh, And according to the uh, London charter, which was passed in August, 1945, um, which uh, set the ground rules for the Nuremberg trial uh created by the big 4 but to which other countries uh to which other countries adhered including Poland only the uh only the uh big 4 could have official um representation uh counsel at the Nuremberg trial but the poles applied to have an unofficial delegation and there was an unofficial Polish delegation at the Nuremberg trial uh that uh at, uh, counseled uh, uh, prosecutors from, especially from the United States and from the Soviet Union, as they prepared and conducted the trial against uh, the major war, Nazi war criminals at the Nuremberg trial. So that uh, already early, you see, early on, 1944, 1945, uh, both uh, the London poles, the Polish uh, government in exile, but then, of course, increasingly, uh, the communists in Poland were. Actively engaged, involved in the um, prosecution of German and Austrian Nazis.
0: So presumably, people put on trial, say, for instance, in the Majdanek trial, are, are people who were captured uh, as as the Soviet army advanced across Poland. But but after the war, um, things would be different. So how did how did the courts identify people that they wanted to put on trial? And how did they um how did they persuade other governments to extradite them to poland and how how smoothly did that process go
1: well that was a, a mixed process i would say the poles um were part of the uh United Nations war crimes commission uh and uh they submitted. Uh, already before the end of the war, and then uh, after the war, the commission lasted for uh, a short time. After the war, they uh, they um, submitted petitions to have uh, Germans and Austrians who were in Allied hands extradited to Poland. So, for instance, in Majdanek, uh, these were uh, uh, that was 1944, before the end of the war. Many Austrian and German Nazis were captured by the Soviets, and then, of course, uh, handed over. Uh, to the Poles, and they were uh, tried. Um, But a a couple of thousand of uh, uh, German Austrian Nazis who were tried in Poland were uh, extradited by uh, the Americans and the British to Poland through the process of the United Nations War Crimes Commission. And um, already early uh, after the, um, uh, once the uh, Poles, consolidated, uh, or after, after the ouster of the Germans from Poland, uh, the uh, Polish uh, provisional government uh, created a uh, historical commission, the main commission for the investigation of Nazi crimes, the główna Komisja, main commission. Uh, and its uh, task was uh, to identify uh, uh, crimes committed by, uh, investigate in, uh crimes committed by Nazis in Poland. Investigate the perpetrators. Uh, gather as much documentation as possible, both witness testimony and the written documentation. And uh, then to uh, take that documentation and to submit um, requests or petitions uh, to the United Nations War Crimes Commission to have uh, Nazis who were in um, American or British hands to have those people extradited uh, to Poland. So the the, the beginning of the process of identifying Nazis was um, initiated by um, poles both in uh, London and then poles uh, who uh, came to Poland via the Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, the process was initially the process was um, conducted through the uh, United Nations War Crime United Nations War Crimes Commission. And there was largely, thanks you now the Poles, when they came to, in Poland, they created uh, this main commission whose task was to uh, investigate crimes and identify the perpetrators. So, in reading may about... I, may I add something to that? Yeah, please. I'm sorry. No, Go I think... ahead. What's also interesting, and this actually, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think uh, maybe this, just to add, to say something else about this, is, uh, and this is a very, this is a part of our book, this important argument or uh Component of our argument about uh, the uh, integration of the memory of the Holocaust into Polish trials is that the official state commission, the main commission for the uh, um, examination uh, of uh, Nazi crimes, that commission worked together with Jewish historians to identify perpetrators and to develop cases against them based on both documents and witness testimony. Already uh, in uh, the fall of 1944, uh, survivors of the Holocaust, some professional historians and others, amateur historians, uh, uh, found themselves in Lublin. And they joined together and they eventually created, uh, what was called the Central Jewish Historical Commission, uh, which then moved from, uh, Lublin, uh, to Lodz or Łódź, Poland. And, uh, that historical commission uh, gathered documents, uh, and gathered testimony from survivors. Um, and one of the main, uh, tasks or, uh, reasons, uh, for the, uh, for this, uh, undertaking was to collect evidence, Jews collecting evidence against Nazis, uh, and then to work together with Polish authorities to bring those Nazis to justice. And so the um, the main commission for the um, prosecution of uh, German crimes or Nazi crimes that was the state commission uh, worked together closely with the Jewish historical commission. Uh, and the two of them together pre- created um, pre- um, uh, the files, uh, the case files for later use then by Polish prosecutors in uh, trials of Nazis, uh, Germans, and Austrians in Poland.
0: Yeah, that was a really interesting section of the book, and, and, and I was going to touch on it later, but this is a good time. So, so m- I think often when we think about Polish-Jewish relations. In the immediate aftermath of the war, our attention is drawn to um, violence and antisemitism and pogroms. Do, do we need to nuance, or how does your work suggest that we should nuance that picture or revise that picture? What what can we say about Polish-Jewish relations based on what you've done in this book, in in this period right after the war? Well,
1: yes. Well, we um, Alex and I believed that we were adding a. Uh, as you put it, we were adding nuance to this picture. I mean, after all, uh, during uh, the uh, the notorious uh, pogrom of Jews in the uh, city of Kielce on July 4th, 1946, this pogrom happened during uh, the Nuremberg trial. And uh, the Nuremberg trial was going on while this pogrom was happening. And yet there were Polish prosecutors, lawyers sent by the Polish government they were at the Nuremberg trial, and they were helping uh, allied prosecutors uh, prosecute uh, the so-called major war criminals, Nazis, uh, on trial there, largely for crimes committed against the Jews in Poland. So uh, what? there was certainly anti-Semitism in post-war uh, Poland, Poland. Um, Anti-Semitism, there's a running thread of uh of anti-Semitism post-war Poland, sometimes more um pronounced, sometimes less pronounced. But uh despite the despite anti semitism despite um, differences between, and this one let me you no know, term that I use is ethnic Poles or Catholic Poles, the Catholic majority and the Jewish Poles, the small Jewish minority, they both had one thing in common. They had, there was a meeting of the minds on one, one thing, and that was bringing Nazis to justice or bringing Nazis before the bar of justice. So even though there was anti-Semitism, this was, again, that's why this area, we find this so fascinating. You know, um, it's a nuance. It's sort of an added wrinkle. Yes, there was anti-Semitism, but there, were, there was some common ground between uh, ethnic Poles, Catholic Poles, and Jewish Poles, and that was bringing uh, Nazis to justice. And they actually, you have to give uh, the uh, Polish uh, Ministry of Justice credit uh, for um, welcoming the participation of Jews in the prosecution of uh, Nazis, of Germans and Austrian Nazis in Poland. Um, And in the book, uh, there's one chapter in particular um, in which we um, uh, examine, explore the extensive involvement of uh, Jewish historians in the trials and also Jewish eyewitnesses uh, in the trials. So um, many uh, Jewish historians served as expert witnesses at the trials of some of the most prominent Nazis who were tried in a Polish courts. And uh, their testimony was uh, incorporated then into the judgment, into the verdicts uh, by uh, the judges who um, convicted of um, uh, Nazis on trial. There were Jewish witnesses at the trials. In some trials, Jews were the star witnesses. Uh, there was the case of um, Amon Goethe, who was the commandant of the notorious camp uh, Płaszów in uh, Polish, Płaszów in uh, English? And uh, many listeners will know that name because uh, uh, Goethe was uh, the character, the main, you know, the main Nazi um, uh, character in uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, Schindler's List. And so they're familiar; they might be familiar with Goethe and uh, Płaszów. That was the camp, and uh, the. Polish prosecution uh, brought several Jews, because it was mainly a camp for Jews, Jews to testify against uh, Goethe. And uh, it was Jewish testimony that basically uh, uh, sealed Goethe's faith in uh, the courtroom. So, yes, there was anti Semitism, no doubt about it. And yet, uh, there was this one institutional space, and the law, but specifically in cases against Nazis. There's one institutional space in which uh, uh, anti-Semitism maybe with you know not really a strong feature, or uh, in those trials. Much more important, I would say, in those trials was cooperation uh, between uh, ethnic poles and Jewish poles, who both had a common strong common interest, strong desire to uh, bring uh, Nazis before the bar of justice and to see them convicted.
0: So one of the challenges in the later West German trials, well, there, there are a number of them, uh, one of which is the, the problematic question of, of eyewitnesses and memory. Another of them is the question of obedience to orders. Um, so I wonder how, how the Polish trials dealt with those kind of questions. How, what what did they decide were the? How did they decide? That's not the right way to put it. What indicators did they use for for Nazi guilt, uh, for instance, belonging to a Nazi organization or participating in what kinds of ways? And how did they wrestle with the fact that so many of the witnesses um, had no way to record? Uh, their their memories un- until they came into the courtroom.
1: Well, let me deal with the uh, the uh, polls uh, as I said before in the August decree of uh, August thirty first, uh, nineteen forty four. Uh, that was a rather expansive decree, uh, which um, uh, made uh, assistance to the Nazi regime an act punishable by death, uh, and uh, various uh, articles and later amendments to that decree uh, made the um, the defense of um, superior orders, basically made it uh, nugatory, that is, it was no longer a defense. Some courts um, uh, used it as uh, considered a mitigating circumstance, but it wasn't a defense According to uh, Polish law. So that was one thing. The other thing was that the polls, I have to say oh, a couple of things I want to say. So the polls also, they, you remember at the Nuremberg trial, the, uh, one of the, um, uh, the Nuremberg uh, court, uh, cr- uh, together with uh, the prosecute, I mean, the prosecution argued for it, and the Nuremberg uh, court decided that certain organizations were criminal per se. For example, uh, the SS. Uh, those were, membership in the SS was already a crime per se. And the um, the polls expanded the uh, concept of criminal organization into one of criminal association. That's, uh, that is to say that even if it could not be proved uh, whether someone was a member of, uh, or uh, an important member of uh, the SS or other um, uh, SD, any uh, Nazi paramilitary organization, By the very fact of being part of a criminal uh, enterprise, that is, of killing, of being in a concentration camp and uh, uh, being responsible for the killing of Jews and others, they were all, by that very fact, they were guilty. So the Polish law expanded uh, the notion of criminal organization to one of criminal association, of people uh, together together. Uh, joined together in a common criminal plan, which uh, reminds me a little bit, or it feels uh, somewhat similar to the notion of criminal conspiracy that was one of the counts uh, for the indictment at the Nuremberg trial. But I have to say the other, I think uh, one interesting fact uh, about the Polish law uh, and the Polish trials is that the Poles codified the notion of genocide uh, even before they... uh, United Nations Convention on Genocide in 1948. Now, you might uh, many you might you probably remember, and may the listeners know that uh, genocide, uh, a term uh, coined by uh, Raphael Lemkin in 1944, was not actually a uh, a uh, criminal offense at the Nuremberg trial. The Nuremberg trial uh, introduced a new criminal offense or species of offense: crimes against humanity but it did not introduce the, uh, the concept of genocide. Genocide appeared once in, um, in the indictment as a descriptive term. If I remember correctly, it appeared once in the verdict as a descriptive term, but it wasn't didn't really, wasn't elevated uh, and given the force of law uh, in uh, Western jurisprudence until the uh, United Nations Convention on Genocide in 1948. But the Polish courts, already codified uh, the concept of genocide in Polish Ludoboistwo. They codified it in uh, the trial of Greisa, who was the uh, governor uh, of of the Wotega, that is that part of Poland that had been annexed uh, to Nazi Germany. And so already by 1946, the Poles um, had codified and made a criminal offense the concept of genocide. And they used that concept not only to discuss, let's say, the destruction of Polish culture by Nazis, but in a couple of trials, one sees in the verdict, judges refer to the uh, genocide, and speaking in legal terms as a criminal offense, they speak, talk of the Nazis' genocide of Jews. So that that's sort of an innovation in Polish law that even, I would say, uh, was an antecedent uh, to the codification of genocide um, in uh the jurisprudence of Western countries and of course the United Nations. The thing about witnesses is you make a good point about, um, witnesses. No one, as I think about it, no one really contested the memory of, uh, witnesses. you know, even the defense, um, not, not vigorously. I would say that the defendant, I mean, I say that, uh, Alex and I write that, um, that these were more or less fair trials, and there were a defense counsel, and the defense counsel defended their um, their uh, defendants, uh, uh, their clients vigorously, and they um, they resorted to various, sometimes extremely uh, intricate, elegant, clever uh, legal arguments to protect um, their clients. Um, but no one really questioned the veracity, reliability. Of uh, the witnesses' uh, testimony, I have to. It was pretty short. At, shortly after my, these trials uh, um, took place, within you know, immediately even before the end of the war, until you know, not too sh- uh, far after the war. So, there, one could say that you know, maybe their memories were stronger. But I want to say one. If, as I was thinking about the book, I think there's one. Uh, as you know, if we always say, "What could we do again?" I'm sure you've done this in your writing. And after I finish, oh, what I've added or what? You, and one thing I wish I had uh, Alex and I had added. and I was thought uh, maybe this is something I'll at least an article write about this at some point. Is that no? I we didn't write about the emotional toll that giving testimony, the emotional toll on the witnesses. And it was became clear to me after the publication of the book, and I was asked to speak about uh, the book a couple of times and about witnesses. And it came, became so clear to me after the book was published that appearing in court took such an emotional toll, required so much emotional effort was traumatic for so many of the witnesses. I mean, I remember, for instance, in the Good trial, I was reading the It's clear to me that the witnesses, they were, now they were standing face to face with their tormentor. And this person who had been, who had decided no was in charge of their life or death stood six feet apart from them, 10 feet apart from them. And that was really a traumatic trying experience for many of them to give testimony in court in the first place. They felt it was their duty, but it took, it was draining emotionally. And that's, you know, I wish I, I wish that we had written more about that. Maybe that's something I'll return to at some point.
0: Um, I'm intrigued. Um the attorneys for um, the defendants, huh? How, how do they respond to that experience? Are they appointed? Or do they volunteer? Do they write about it their experience later? Do they do a best a good faith effort to defend their clients? How does that all work? Yeah, well,
1: you. Um, I don't think that uh, that's a good question. I mean, there. Are, we Alex and I found instances in which uh they were appointed uh to defend their clients. Uh they were all Poles, uh Polish uh, lawyers. Uh, in a few cases, uh the lawyers uh petitioned the court to be uh released from uh their appointments to defend Nazis. After all, uh, I think the uh, running strongly, especially in the immediate post-war years, uh the let's say the first five or six years. 45 to 50, let's say, there was a tremendous um, electricity uh, in the air in Poland, tremendous thirst for retribution and even vengeance against uh, German and Austrian uh, criminals, against German and Austrian Nazis. Um, One was not going to put oneself uh, in the best light by defending uh, defendants whom the majority of society absolutely hated. And uh, you know in many cases uh, the f- lawyers were forced to defend uh, clients whom uh, they uh, didn't they didn't like them, of course they didn't want to defend them and they tried to get out of it, but they weren't allowed to get out of it. The courts uh, always uh, rejected those um petitions by uh, defense attorneys um to uh, be released from the case on the other hand, once they were resigned to uh, their fates, the attorneys. When you look at the, the jobs that they did, and I was an attorney, I was a prosecutor for four years, and, a, and what, my last year as an attorney, I was a defense attorney. They did, in my view, a spirited job, the best job that they could under the circumstances of defending their clients, you know, um, finding legal arguments, uh, challenging the jurisdiction of the courts, for example, over their clients. That happened quite a lot. Um, um, trying to put the best face forward, the best face on uh, their clients' um, actions, um, sort of mitigating uh, their responsibilities somewhat. So I would say, as you put it, I, in the majority of cases, um, the efforts by defense attorneys were good faith effort to do the best job they could uh, for their clients.
0: And is there, to what degree, maybe I should say, to what degree do... Uh, the defendants do these germans and austrian nazis do they acknowledge their guilt at all do they ask for uh i don't know forgiveness or uh whatever word you want to use or do they simply uh, to what degree do they simply stonewall and deny and say uh i was just following orders or you're mistaken it wasn't me
1: so, Kelly, this is such an interesting question. So, there were five thousand five hundred uh, yeah. German or Austrian Nazis who were convicted. Alex and I did not read five thousand five hundred cases. <laughs> we read several hundred. We read, we read several hundred cases, especially you know, the, especially the most important ones, but also some that were least less important. But the, certainly, uh, the most important cases. There was only one Nazi on trial who uh, confessed his guilt. All of them, no, they all blamed each other, or they all tried to shift the blame onto Hitler, Himmler, and uh, the Nazi leadership, or they blamed each other, and they were sniping. They never, uh, there was only one who uh, accepted responsibility. It's very interesting who that was, and that was Rudolf Hoess. Rudolf Hoess, who was the commandant at Auschwitz who's, you know, his trial was probably one of the most important, uh, in po- I would say probably, you know, the Nazis who were put on trial in Poland, Hors's trial is among the top two, three most important trials. Uh, his- he was tried uh, in the uh, spring of uh, 1947 uh, in the Polish um, Supreme National Tribunal. Now, the Poles I mean, they created the, the Polish government created a special tribunal between 1946 and 48 to try let's say the most important cases. And Husses was of those cases, probably the most visible, the most important drew the most attention. Uh, um, I think a hundred witnesses, if I remember correctly, uh, about, uh, of the witnesses, uh, many Jewish witnesses, uh, there was ample evidence against Huss, a documentary and uh, witness testimony against him. And he was, and Huss, by the way, it, you know, some of uh, you, I know that you are, and some of the listeners may be familiar with Huss's uh, memoir, in which he uh, writes about his years as Commandant of Auschwitz. Uh, he wrote that memoir while he was in Polish custody, actually. And uh, Huss basically confessed. To all the crimes uh, that he committed at Auschwitz, um, uh, but he was—he uh, was the only one um, who um, accepted responsibility uh, for uh, his crimes. All the others uh, either denied responsibility or they claimed that they were following orders, and they tried to shift the blame uh, to the top brass, so Hitler, Himmler, and the others, or to competing Nazi. Uh, organizations, um, but, uh, none of them wanted to accept responsibility except hers. Hers was different. Mm.
0: So I take students to Europe every other year, uh, or at least I have in the past. We'll see if that can continue. Um, and uh-huh. I take them to Auschwitz, which of course is, um, has become a, a stop on the, uh, I don't know. I don't want to call it a tour, but one of the places, um, people who are interested in following the physical sites and geography stop at. I've also been to Lublin and to Majdanek, not with students. And that spot is definitely not. It's very different. Um, so these trials, do Poles now remember them? Um, do, they, do they think they were important or have they, I don't know, vanished, but receded in, in, in memory over time?
1: That's a good, you know, I've been to Poland many times and people know what i've been working on but i think that the maybe with the, you know if people visit auschwitz and they go they go to the exhibition hall they'll see you know there might be a, a tableau uh on a wall a couple of photographs maybe uh a caption or two about the trial there were two big auschwitz trials in poland uh, in 1947 there was a trial of hers in uh, the spring of 1947, and then in the fall of 1947, there was a trial of uh, 40 uh, personnel from Auschwitz. Um, uh, that was uh, so. You know, it's very. I know it's interesting. I um, uh, just to say something. Many people think that the first important Auschwitz trial was in 1963, 1965 trial of Auschwitz personnel in Frankfurt, Germany. That's not true. The first important Auschwitz trials were held in 1947 in Poland. The first of Rudolf Husserl was the Commandant, and then of 40 uh, Auschwitz other personnel in uh, the fall of 1947. So when you go to Auschwitz, you might see um, in in the exhibition hall uh, a a picture or two, a photograph or two of the trials and um, a caption. But for the most part, uh, I think that these trials have been Uh, Largely forgotten, except among a few people, you know, who are interested, scholars who are interested uh, in these things. Um, You know, when Alex and I uh, were writing our book, just we'd finished, uh, just before it was going to, um, we'd finished the first draft, and we were invited uh, to a conference in Poland, at um, which people like us, scholars in the West, were invited to come present our work to scholars in Poland, it was very interesting. And a couple of scholars at the University of Wrocław, former Breslau, read our book and they critiqued it really well. We learned a lot from that session. When we had so we had Polish colleagues who were interested in our work and knew what we were talking about. But in the general public, I don't think that the trials. Um, resonate uh, very much.
0: Well, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, is there anything... Oh, it's been about a the, pleasure. The book, Thank you. The book is far richer than we've had a chance to talk to. Is there any any other theme or, or thing that you would like to highlight before we kind of move out of the interview?
1: Um, just I think that uh, once again, as we've been uh, discussing throughout our, this conversation, I think that the book adds... Another dimension or another perspective when one thinks about uh, post-war justice and when one thinks about the uh, memory of the Holocaust, you know, a lot of times um, people think that uh, even you know, students, people who think about these things, think that trials of Nazis uh, in Western countries uh, were, and I'm putting this word in quotation marks, were better than trials of Nazis, let's say, in uh, Eastern European countries, countries in the Soviet orbit or in the uh, Soviet bloc. I think instead of generalizing, one has to look at the results in each country. And uh, as you will remember from reading our book, in our epilogue, we actually compare uh, the trials of uh, Nazi criminals in Poland to trials of Nazi criminals in the Netherlands. And our conclusion was that... You know the effort invested by poles in trials and the prosecution and trials of Nazis of German and Austrian Nazis in Poland and the way in which those trials proceeded and the results and the way in which the Holocaust was dealt with was more or less similar to the way in which it unfolded in courts in the Netherlands. So to say that it was better or worse, one I think it's you shouldn't one shouldn't generalize. And the other thing I and one the other thing is that um this is a point i've said that you know there's one has to think about the holocaust about memory of the holocaust uh, in a different collective memory that there were institutional spaces in which the holocaust was given um uh, was acknowledged in an open setting uh you know, there's one which we didn't we didn't mention this, but um, you know, there's a famous. I've been there a couple of times. There's a famous memorial at Treblinka, you know, where uh, 900, uh, roughly 900,000 Jews were killed by the Nazis. Um, and there's a that memorial. It was actually erected uh, in if memory serves me correctly. I'm off the top of my head. It's either 1963 or 64. Of course, this is during the communist regime. And it's you know, it's one of the most moving memorials to the Holocaust anywhere in the world. And it's, a, it's I would say, a bona fide acknowledgement of the Holocaust. So you have rare institutional spaces in which the Holocaust is acknowledged in Poland. They're rare. One was the Treblinka Monument, but the other was the Tropic. Another point that I want to make that grows out of this, this idea about uh, memory of the Holocaust, the way in which it was... Um, acknowledged through the trials, is that very often, uh, I think until recently, and still even now, many, uh, when people think about uh, Jews and after the war and the prosecutions of Nazis, you know, Jews are often seen as passive. You know, um, Jews... uh, Prosecutors from various uh, countries call Jews to testify. They testify and then they send them home. You know, they play, Jews play a passive role. And uh, I, Alex and I argue, and we're part of a small vanguard of other scholars, I think, who argue that Jews were not passive after the war. Jews were actively involved in the prosecution of Nazis through gathering evidence, through testifying at trials, through consulting with um, attorneys, and even Jewish attorneys participated uh, in trials, both in Poland. Some of the attorneys who participated in trials against Nazis were Jewish. So uh, I think one general lesson to be learned from this is that after the war, Jews were not merely the playthings of uh, prosecutors and nations as they prosecuted uh, uh, Nazis in, in, the, uh, in post-war justice. Jews were active participants uh, in post-war justice. And I think that's something important to keep in mind.
0: We've been talking to Gabi Finder, uh, the co-author, along with Alexander Prusin, about his book, or about their book, Justice Behind the Iron Curtain. Gabi, uh, I always end the interviews with two questions. Uh, and first is... Um, I wonder if you could suggest to the audience a, a book or a movie or, or something um, that was meaningful for you while you were writing this book that, that they should read or watch or, or view uh, in, in, in the next weeks.
1: Well, there, no, um, of course, it's not something that I watched uh, during, uh, the month, during the period that we were writing the book, but um, Schindler's List – List. One could go back to Schindler's List and uh, see the portrayal of Goethe. And uh, uh, Mietek Pemper, who was the person who was the star witness against Goethe, is uh, one of the characters, uh, is actually amalgamated into one of the characters in the film Stern. So one could get a sense of um, that there. But actually, during the writing of our book, uh, I watched a documentary a BBC documentary that was on PBS. And uh, it was called, or it is called, one can still see it today, one can find it. It's called What Our Fathers Did, A Nazi Legacy. I don't know if you're familiar with that documentary. No, I'm not. Sure. And um, it's about an hour and a half. It was a BBC uh, documentary. Uh, the director's name was uh, Richard uh, Evans. But the the concept... And of the documentary was created by, and it it was written by uh, Philippe Sands, who wrote uh, a very good book. Uh, He's an international lawyer. He wrote a book called East West Street about the Nuremberg trial. Uh, He lost his family. His family was from, he's a Jewish uh, man. His uh, family of almost 100 people, with the exception of his grandfather, uh, lived in a town, Zhukiev, which was about... um, maybe 25 miles away from uh, Lviv, Lviv Lviv-Lemberg, a big Jewish center. Uh, Almost every member of his family was killed except his grandfather. And um, uh, Philippe Sands was able to make contact with uh, the sons of two Nazis. Uh, One was, uh, he made contact with uh, Nicholas um, uh, Frank, Frank, who was the son of Hans Frank. Hans Frank was the, general governor of the uh, of the governor of the general government in Poland, that is that part of occupied Poland, who was tried and of uh, convicted and hanged in the Nuremberg trial for his crimes committed uh in uh occupied Poland, largely against uh the Jews. Uh and the Polish Poles were the Polish delegation, unofficial delegation uh to the Nuremberg trial helped uh allied prosecutors uh prepare their case against uh hans frank hans frank was convicted and hanged so nicholas frank is one of the philippe Fra- uh, sons um uh, 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 f- uh finds nicholas frank and he also finds another son of a nazi uh he finds firstst von Vechter who was the son his father was Otto von Vechter who is basically uh hans frank's uh, immediate lieutenant, one of immediate lieutenants, he was the um, uh, governor of the Krakow, uh, Krakow district, and then later he became uh, governor of the district of Galicia, who was also involved in the killing of uh, Jews and Poles. But he evaded justice, and he was, uh, at the end of uh, 1945, 1949, he was actually hidden by the Vatican for a year before he died. Urs von Wächter denies any responsibility on the part of his father. All right. But it's so in, that's that's not so interesting. I mean, it was expected, but what's so interesting is that Nicholas Frank, who was born in 1939. So this film was made, I saw the film in 2015. So it was in his seventies, I think he concedes that his father was a criminal and he concedes that his father, I mean, he basically cuts himself off from his father Uh, and uh, he agrees that his father uh, was a criminal and that he deserved to be punished and they deserved to be hanged, which is so unusual. At the end of the film, it's the very last minute or two, Philippe Sanz, who's the Jewish lawyer, is with Nicholas Frank, who's the son of one of the worst Nazis, Hans Frank. They're in the Nuremberg courtroom, the Palace of Justice in Nuremberg. The courtroom has been preserved. Nicholas Frank sits in the same chair in the dock where the defendant sits in the same chair as his father used to sit during the Nuremberg trial, and he says, he looks, he's in the courtroom. He says, I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close to a quotation. He says, "For me, this is a happy place, and for the world, perhaps this is a happy place." And you know, that that was amazing. And you, put my, you know, my Hans Frank was. Played a large role in our book, figures prominently in our book, and the efforts of Poles and Jews to find him guilty play a large role in our book and it goes to show me one thing about now, i don't know if it's a lesson, but it goes to show that the actions of not, of these not, of Nazis, but not only the actions but also the trials themselves have an impact on the people who come afterwards. I mean, the trials have an impact on me as the child of survivors and victims. I'm deeply uh, engaged in the pursuit of justice. I write about it. I was even involved as a lawyer at one point in it, but also in the offspring of both uh, the victims and the, um, and the perpetrators. And so it's not as if the trial, you asked me whether Paul's remember the trials. You know, your average poll doesn't, but maybe children of uh, victims or survivors of uh, the, the victims of Nazis who were put on trial, maybe they remember those trials. So there is this chain, and that was so amazing. When I, I, said, when I saw that film, it was a coincidence. I said, You know what? Uh, our book actually has some resonance beyond uh, the world of scholarship.
0: Hmm. Well I will put that on my queue and um thank you for the suggestion the, the the other question I always ask um and it's maybe unfair knowing how much work people do to uh, write books um but most academics seem to just plunge into another project so so what are you working on now
1: Well <laughs> uh well thank you for asking um I have a couple of projects uh in in progress Uh, Something I've been working on for a long time, uh, which I've also edited a book, co-edited a book on, um, and which I'm now finishing my own monograph on, is uh, Honor Courts. So I'm staying within Jewish history, post-war Holocaust uh, and law. Honor Courts were uh, Jewish communal courts uh, created after World War II and the Holocaust by survivors. In European countries who uh, um, investigated uh, Jews accused of having dirty hands, Jews accused of cooperating with the Nazis, and if the facts warranted, uh, they put uh, fellow Jews on trial, so to speak, in unofficial uh, communal courts, they put Jews in trial in front of a panel of their Jewish peers. And these courts go by various names. The general term is honor courts because they were courts of honor. These weren't criminal courts. Uh, the basic question in these courts is whether or not uh, Jews had betrayed uh, other Jews. It was a question of betrayal of the Jewish community. And uh, so um, with my dear friend and colleague, Laura Yokosh, we um, two of us published uh, co-edited a book called Jewish Honor Courts um, in 2015. And uh, in that edited book, uh, I dealt with the honor court in post war Poland. That is the Polish Jewish communal court in which uh, about uh, 30 fellow Jews uh, who were accused of having dirty hands with the Nazis were tried in a court of their Jewish peers. So, that was a. a, a, I have written a couple of articles on that topic. And uh, now I want to finish the work now. And so, I'm uh, working on a monograph on uh, the Polish-Jewish Honor Court. Uh, That is, again, um, so basically, uh, which existed from 1946 to 1949, uh, and a court in which um, a tribunal, communal tribunal, which some 30 Jews were tried before panels of their Jewish peers uh, for their uh, alleged uh, cooperation uh, with the Nazis during World War II and the Holocaust. And so I think that's interesting. I mean, this ties in a little bit to the book that Alex and I wrote. One reason that Alex and I decided to write this book is we realized after doing initial investigation that the court, that the trials of um, German and Austrian Nazis were not uh, kangaroo courts. They weren't uh, Stalinist type show trials. And uh, the same is true of the honor courts. Um, uh, the trials in the Jewish uh, communal courts were not show trials. Uh of the 30 or so uh, Jews, I mean, that's a small, we're talking about a small, small number of people. Uh, 30 Jews were tried by their fellow Jews um, for having worked together with the uh, Nazis. Of those, 18 were convicted out of 30. That's about two-thirds. And um, that's not, uh, those are not the statistics of a show trial. When you think of show trials, you think of 90%, 95%, only two-thirds. I have to say, I was a prosecutor for four years of my five-year legal career. And I'll never forget the first thing that I was told on my first day in the district attorney's office in Jerusalem, I was told by the district attorney, a freshly minted lawyer. uh, I said, if you don't think that you have at least a two-thirds chance of winning your case, forget it. Because, you know, it's generally expected that the prosecutors are going to win about two-thirds of their cases. You try to find enough evidence to win two-thirds of your cases. So in in this Polish Jewish honor court, the rate was about two-thirds. Uh, of uh, those who were put on trial were convicted. So that tells me that these, you know, and I've gone through the evidence, these again were not show trials. And I think that's what makes them interesting. And you have Jews wanting to, I don't know, uh, they uh, they, um, want autonomy. They want to decide themselves how, what to do with, uh, how to um, rebuild themselves, not only physically, but also morally. What is the Jewish future going to look like? And that means, at least in the minds of um, Jews in the immediate post-war period, that means a community in which those who uh, have, might have dirty hands are not assuming leadership positions in the community. That was the main reason for uh, the uh, establishment of these courts. So that's what I'm working on right now, um, the Polish Jewish
0: Honor Courts. Well, it's a fascinating project. And I hope when you're done, you'll come back on um, the New Books Network to talk about it. But until then, thank you so much for talking to us and um, stay safe in these strange times. Thank you, Kelly, so much. It
1: was a real pleasure. I enjoyed the opportunity to talk about the work that uh, Alex and I did. And uh, also the same to you and your family. Uh, Be safe and stay healthy. Thank you so much.